0: All right, well, in Pastor Little's absence, I was asked to bring a message tonight and the uh, took a break from the uh, studies on the millennium that will be beginning here soon in the Sunday school hour and from the evangelistic preparations and the, the systematic theologian in me um, decided we were going to speak on the deity of the Holy Spirit tonight. So we're getting a topical message more of a systematic study than an exposition of a particular Bible passage. So we're going to consider the deity of the Holy Spirit, kind of uh, supplement our t- uh, teaching on the deity of Christ that we went through uh, some weeks back. So the deity of the Holy Spirit, we'll begin uh, by reading a passage of Scripture. We'll start with uh, Psalm 139. We'll read that before we go. Pray to the Spirit and ask for His blessing on our time tonight. Psalm 139. We'll be turning to all kinds of portions of Scripture tonight. So this will be one of the, one of the passages. We'll read the first 12 verses. Psalm 139 verse one. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Let us pray. Father, our God, we're grateful for this time tonight in which we can gather together during the middle of our week to contemplate who you are in your triune nature, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. We thank you, O Lord, for... Each part that each member of the Godhead plays in our salvation for the unique role they play in the economic trinity. We are grateful for uh, your plan of salvation that um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have worked together to accomplish and to bring about to us poor, wretched sinners. We're grateful for revealing yourself to us. We're grateful to you, O Spirit, for writing this book for us that we can. Uh, understand something of the great God who made us and whom we serve. We pray now for your illuminating powers as we consider uh, your word, that you would help us to understand and to comprehend more of who you are and that in all of uh, the service tonight that uh, you would have the preeminence. We pray that uh, we would be drawn near to you, O Lord, and to Uh, the conformity of Your nature, for it's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith is the Trinity. This is, of course, not a message on the Trinity. It is a message on uh, the Holy Spirit. But the Trinity, of course, one God in three persons, is the doctrine stated. And our 1689 Confession, Chapter 2, paragraph 3 states, In this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son, all-infinite. Without beginning, therefore, but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. Excellent little portion of doctrine there. And of course, when we consider the deity of Christ, we stated that no one really questions the deity of the Father. Uh, There are many monotheistic religions who equate the Father with their own deity, and everybody assumes the deity of the Father pretty much to to some degree of all uh, faiths. The deity of the Son is, of course, hotly contested by uh, most religions around the world, and, and the deity of the Spirit is largely ignored or considered irrelevant for the most part. The deity of the Holy Spirit is not as much an issue in pneumatology as actually proving the mere personhood of the Spirit. That seems to be where the issue really lies for most folks. The Holy Spirit is usually regarded as little more than an impersonal force or some third-tier derived deity, almost like God's messenger boy or something. But if the Holy Spirit is God, then we must be careful to give Him all that He is due by virtue of His Godhood. This is, again, it's it's the same uh, all or nothing proposition that we faced when we consider the deity of the Son. If He is God, then we owe an allegiance. We owe uh, service to Him as God. If He's not God, then we need to be careful of worshiping Him lest we commit idolatry. We remember that Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty one, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man himself will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, We know that biblically, blasphemy is always directed toward God. I don't want to jump too far ahead of myself, but this verse does prove the personhood and deity of the Spirit possible impossible to blaspheme anybody but God, and it's impossible to blaspheme a uh, non-personal entity. So this verse seems to prove both of those things. John Owen says about this verse, and if you want to read on the Holy Spirit, uh, John Owen's Volume 3 is about the uh, most comprehensive work you can find on the Holy Spirit. But he writes, "...to suppose now that this Holy Ghost... Is not a divine person, is for men to dream whilst they seem to be awake. Uh, well, whatever you would understand this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to be in Matthew 12 that Jesus speaks of, God the Son certainly here expects us to take the Holy Spirit seriously. You can blaspheme the Son, it's, that's one thing that can be forgiven, but this Holy Spirit cannot be. Jesus expects us to take this Holy Spirit person seriously. And we should as Christians because it's the Holy Spirit that we are most intimately involved with in our Christian life and walk by virtue of His indwelling us. Try to unpack that a little bit. When Jesus was here on this earth, He was to His disciples what the Holy Spirit is to all Christians since the ascension of Jesus Christ into glory. Post-ascension it is the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, according to Romans 8 9, and He is God in our midst. For Jesus' disciples, He was God in their midst. But now Jesus has many more disciples than just those twelve, and the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. So each one of us has the Holy Spirit of God leading us much in the same way Jesus led His disciples. And he uses the book that he wrote to do that very thing, which includes Jesus' teachings, the whole counsel of God to us. And as Jesus talked with his disciples before the events of his betrayal and arrest in John 18, three times Jesus sought to encourage his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus called another helper. Let's turn over to the Gospel of John. We'll begin in John 14. Many studies of the Holy Spirit begin here as Jesus moves closer to His final hour. He speaks three times with earnest, emphatic speech about His delight in giving to His disciples the Holy Spirit. This was something Jesus had a longing for, almost something He looked forward to. So if this was precious and important to Jesus, it ought to be to us as well. Let's look at John fourteen verse 16 John 14:16 and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you and then look at verse 26 of that same chapter John 14:26 But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We have these four gospel accounts because of the Holy Spirit's work for us. That these gospel accounts have been carried down through the church throughout all ages because the Holy Spirit did bring to remembrance all these things. And He brings to our remembrance verses from Scripture. Some people talk about receiving revelations of the Holy Spirit. Well, i cut to the chase, don't believe that we receive revelations, but we do receive illumination. We are reminded of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. If we we are to hear God speak, it will be the words of Scripture. Any other words, be very suspect that they are from God. I would suggest they are not. We know what God says here in Scripture. If you receive other words that are not in Scripture... Don't trust them as gods. We have a word from God. And if they are words from Scripture, those are the ones we want to follow. And then in John chapter 15, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail. John fifteen twenty-six, Jesus is still speaking. He says, But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then John 16, 26. To you. So we see here Jesus speaks with an emphatic, sympathetic longing to give the Holy Spirit to his church, his disciples, to be with her until the bridegroom comes back for her, for the bride. And for 2,000 years under the new covenant, and really since the beginning of time in the old covenant, uh, the Holy Spirit has been actively bestowing blessings on God's people. God the Father purposed and planned to love a people from all eternity. God the Son demonstrated that love in time and space on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit throughout creation, both before the cross and after, has been applying that love and making the people of God grateful for it. So we see a Trinitarian outworking of the the gospel of the love of God for us each member has a part to play and so we should be grateful for each um, member and the part that they play in God's trinitarian redeeming love the Holy Spirit his part is the part of regeneration he's the one that gives us new life new birth from above of course the classic passage on this that I hope to bring Lord Willing when we do our evangelistic studies, I hope to bring it uh, September 27th, but we' speaking from the passage, John chapter three, John chapter three, speaking of the Holy Spirit, giving us new birth, one of the things he does. Of course Jesus here is having a dialogue with Nicodemus, John three verse four. Nicodemus said to him, "How can a man be born when he's old?" So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us new birth. He's also the one who seals us after He grants us new birth. He seals us. He marks us as God's property. 2 Corinthians one twenty two. He marks us as God's uh, redeemed, His holy ones. 2 Corinthians one twenty two. We read. Well, let's back up to verse twenty one and it is god who establishes us with you in christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee or down payment and then ephesians 430 ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption the holy spirit seals us he is the one who ultimately wrote the bible remember second peter 1:21 holy men spoke as they were moved by the holy spirit and he is the one who illuminates it for us we look at 1 corinthians 2 verses 10 through 13 1 corinthians 2 verses 10 through 13 these things god has revealed to us through the spirit Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And all this is to say that we owe, we as Christians owe an immeasurable debt to the Holy Spirit, no less than we owe to the Father and Son. In our prayers, worship, praise, devotion, service, love to God, let us not forget God the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from the Father and the Son as a down payment, a token of the love of God. Regenerates us, illuminates us, opens our eyes to see and understand the love of God revealed in His Word, in His Gospel. We owe a great debt to the Holy Spirit. And so in an effort to deepen our understanding and appreciation for the forgotten God, as one author titled his work on the Holy Spirit... We're going to consider the scriptural proof for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Certainly there's a lot to talk about uh, in all the books I have on the Holy Spirit. Not a a whole lot was actually said about deity. It was more about the different works He did. But I want to consider the deity of the Holy Spirit tonight. And I want to do that using several of the same categories that we did when we considered the deity of the Son. We're going to begin, first of all, by stating that the Spirit is equal with but separate from the Father and the Son and is included in a number of what we'll call Trinitarian texts that put Him on par with the Father and the Son. Those two texts, you may already be thinking of them. Uh, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, we looked at this text and we considered the deity of the Son. Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19, verse 18 reads, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there we see the Holy Spirit linked with both the Father and the Son. In that text. Hold that uh, thought. We'll move on to uh, 2 Corinthians 13.14 for another uh, instance where the Trinity is referenced. 2 Corinthians 13.14 we read, "...the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all." And so just like we said concerning Jesus Christ, how can you have a Trinitarian mention where one of the members is something less than deity? The question still, still stands there. Why would we have God, God, something that isn't God? The question uh, that, that deserves a, an answer from the Unitarians. We have the trifecta there. And then there's also some passages where the spirit is on equal par with the Son. There's a number of those. For instance, Acts 9:31. Acts 9 verse 31, we read, "So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied." And then Romans 15:30. I'm going to turn to all these passages. You don't have to, but if you want to write them down for reference. Romans 15.30, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. There you could say there's a, another Trinitarian uh, reference. And then 1 Corinthians 6.11 Next book over, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There we have the Holy Spirit on equal par with the Son. And then uh, Philippians 2, verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, we have another coupling of the Spirit with the Son. And then one more, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, verse 29. We read, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. So there the sin is committed against who? Not just the Son of God, but the Spirit of grace also. So we see another coupling. So how do we explain all these few Trinitarian texts and then some more where he's cupl- where the Holy Spirit is coupled with the Son John Frame who I tend to quote a lot I guess writes it is inconceivable that in these texts which identify the divine name specify the ultimate source of spiritual blessing and speak of God in worshipful terms one of the three members should lack divine status it is it is Uh, incomprehensible, that one of the three should lack. So the Holy Spirit will start by including Him with the uh, other members of the Trinity. Now let's move more to Him personally. We considered this class of evidence when we uh, looked at the deity of Jesus Christ. We're going to consider next Old Testament references to Yahweh that are applied to the Spirit in the New Testament. That's important for us. Yahweh is the divine covenant name for God in the Old Testament, the highest uh, title that he had among the uh, children of Israel. And the New Testament gives the Holy Spirit's voice to those words that were spoken by Yahweh in the Old Testament. The first passage is Psalm 95, 6-11, through 11, which reads, O come, let us bow down. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." So there's Yahweh speaking covenant language captured in Psalm 95 that harkens back to the events of Exodus 17, Yahweh and His covenant dealings. Now let's fast forward to Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And if we look at verse 7, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is ascribed these words of Yahweh in Hebrews 3.7. Therefore... Apostle writes, as the Holy Spirit says, and then through the rest of verse 7 all the way through verse 11, he quotes Psalm 95 for us. The Holy Spirit is said to be the one speaking these words. Let's look at one more in Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 verse 8 says and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us and I said here am I send me and he said go and say to these, this people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed Isaiah's commissioning there with a commissioned with a hardening ministry of god some pastors receive that others receive a reviving ministry from god but this text in acts 28 in verse 25 here the holy spirit the same lord in, in verse in chapter 6 of isaiah in acts 28:25 is said to speak those words And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. What is Paul's statement? The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And then verses 26 and 27 are a quotation of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. So the same Lord that Isaiah saw seated high and lifted up, saw Jesus Christ on His throne... And it was given a commission. That commission was attributed to the Holy Spirit. And then one more, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. This one is especially explicit. Jeremiah 31. In verse 31, we have the new covenant introduced here. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. Behold, the days are coming, are coming, declares the Lord, and there's all caps, there's Yahweh, explicitly Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, Yahweh. So there we have Yahweh used multiple times through that text the actual in the actual verses. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 we look at Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 15 the author of Hebrews writes and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying and then verse 16 quotes Jeremiah 31-33 and then Hebrews 10 17 quotes Jeremiah 31 34 for us. Yahweh was the one speaking in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, and Hebrews here tells us that was the Holy Spirit that spoke the ageless, eternal, divine Holy Spirit. So we have some Old Testament references uh, that are applied, that are spoken by Yahweh in the Old Testament, applied to the Spirit in the New Testament. And then we have uh, explicit mentions or explicit references of the Holy Spirit as God. There's really only one of these that most theologians agree on, one reference in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is explicitly called God, and that is found in the book of Acts chapter 5. So our third category of evidence is the Spirit expressly called God, Theos in the Greek. In Acts chapter 5, we're all familiar with this story. We have Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of land, and they come to give some of the portion of the money they made from that land to the church. And Ananias comes in, lies about how much they sold it for, how much they were giving. They give the money and the Holy Spirit strikes him dead. Well, his wife Sapphira comes in, tells the same lie. Yeah, we sold the land for so much. Here's the portion of that. And Peter rebukes uh, her for it. And then she drops down dead. Let's pick up the reading, Acts 5 verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. What's so bad about this? Well, Peter explains, verse 4, "...while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." So in verse 3, Peter says, "...Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit." And then in verse 4... Lied to God. So God the Holy Spirit was the one offended at the sin of Ananias. And so there is an explicit reference by the Apostle Peter to the Holy Spirit as God. Whereas we had 10 or 11 texts that demonstrated the deity of Jesus Christ, we have but this one for the Holy Spirit that uh, the church has agreed on but it is, it is a, a true um, reference. So there's our, our proof text for the Holy Spirit, identified as God, Theos in the Greek. Well, let's consider a fourth category of evidence that we consider when we looked at the deity Jesus Christ, and that is He does divine works, or works only God could do. And there are especially two of those. Uh, the Holy Spirit takes part in creation. We all remember Genesis 1. Many of us have Genesis 1 memorized certain portions of that. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the Spirit is on the scene from very early on. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there we see the Spirit in creation. And then Psalm 33, 6, Again, links the Holy Spirit with the work of creation. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath, it's the same Hebrew word for spirit, by the breath of His mouth, all their host. Hebrew term ruach used in both instances. So the Holy Spirit, present at the creation, the physical creation of all things. And the Holy Spirit is said to give physical life. We look at Job. If you're there in Psalms, flip back to Job. Job 33, verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So there we see one reference to the Spirit providing physical life. And then Psalm 104, verse 30. Psalm 104, 30, we read, When you send forth your Spirit... They are created. And you renew the face of the ground. And then one final reference in Luke one thirty five: The Holy Spirit in the physical formation of the baby Jesus. Luke 1.35. And the angel said to her, Gabriel speaking to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit creating physical life. But it gets even better than that. The Holy Spirit also creates spiritual life. We remember John 3 that we looked at earlier. Let's look at John six sixty three. Jesus is speaking here. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all referring there to spiritual life of which the flesh plays no part it profits nothing he says elsewhere the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life and then romans 8:11 romans 8 verse 11 we read if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who dwells in you. There is spiritual life that quickening to our mortal bodies. Uh, spiritual life, and then Second Corinthians three six. Second Corinthians three verse six. who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law kills. It destroys us. It's our schoolmaster to send us on to Christ. The law has no power to save, only to destroy it. The law damns us. But what does the Spirit do? He gives us eternal life. The Spirit gives life. And then one final reference Titus 3, 3, verse 5, we read... Well, verse 4 is glorious. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. A lot in those three words. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Born again by the Holy Spirit. He gives spiritual birth. He plays a part in both physical and spiritual birth. That's the prerogative of God alone, all births in the world. And it's a special work God, the Holy Spirit, plays a part in. So the Holy Spirit does divine works. He creates physical life. He creates uh, uh, eternal life, second birth. But he also possesses, by way of the fifth category of evidence, he possesses attributes of God. We've we've assumed something all along, and that's okay. He's called the Holy Spirit. We looked at holiness as one of Jesus' divine attributes when we were in Isaiah six. He's called the Holy Spirit after all, almost one hundred times in Scripture. Overwhelming amount of evidence for his holiness. Such a repetition signifies that such holiness is nothing less than an inherent part of who he is, of his nature, that he is that thrice holy God, the Holy Spirit. That attribute is so much a part of him, it's, it's part of his name, part of what we refer to him as Holy Spirit. So, holiness, he possesses the attribute of holiness, he is eternal. If we look at Hebrews 9, verse 14. Hebrews 9, verse 14. He is eternal, an attribute of God. We are mortal, God is eternal. Hebrews nine fourteen. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. There He's referred to as the eternal Spirit. He has no birthday, He will have no funeral. He is eternal, the Holy Spirit. He's also infinite. Let's look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 13. We read there, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Some of you may be reading King James Bibles, who is directed... The Hebrew word there is takan to regulate, estimate, measure. Who is measured? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? So he's infinite. There's no measuring the Holy Spirit. We can all be measured. We have scales and tape measures and you know things. We have pant sizes and all. We can be measured. The Holy Spirit? No, cannot be measured. He's immense. He's infinite in his capacity. And then uh, he's also omniscient. I hope you're there in Isaiah 40. Do you see the last part of verse 13? Isaiah 40, 13. Or what man shows him his counsel? There's nothing any one of us can tell the Holy Spirit that he doesn't already know because he's omniscient. It's a rhetorical question there in Isaiah. Holy Spirit knows everything. 1 Corinthians 2 makes this abundantly clear. If we flip over to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 10, we read, These things, well, these things are verse 9, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches Everything. That's a lot to search. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? You think studying a woman is deep, fellas? The Holy Spirit searches deep things of God. Deep things of God. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. His knowledge is such that he comprehends all the thoughts of God. That's a lot. The psalmist says, All your thoughts to me, they cannot be numbered. The Holy Spirit knows them all. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. And then He is also omnipresent. That's somewhat implied by His name, Spirit. Uh, We read Psalm 139 before we began this, this message. Psalm 139. We'll flip back there real quick. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. The psalmist asks a rhetorical question. This is David here. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Implied answer, there isn't anywhere. You can't win, hide, and seek against the Holy Spirit. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? This is a great thing for the believer because we know that wherever we are and it can be in the darkest, deepest dungeon being tortured for the faith, God's there. We can be super high up, you know, 35,000 feet up in a plane and God's there also. And the psalmist says that. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. I can't go high enough up before I start to run out of oxygen. You're there, Lord, and you're beyond it. If I make my bed in Sheol or in hell, the grave, whatever you want to put there. God's in all those places too. Some, some people have an issue with God being in hell. God is what makes hell terrible. Because there, um, the unbelievers only know the wrath of God. God is there tormenting them day and night for their unbelief. And the psalmist writes, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the sea, I love studying marine biology. All the monsters that dwell there, play in our little shipwrecks, things we build that on the surface seem so big and the sea gulps it right up. We have trouble finding it then. The sea. You can't go deep enough into the sea. The Marianas Trench isn't deep enough to carry you away from the presence of God. Because the Spirit is in all of these places. Spirit is omniscient. And then Acts, omniscient, He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. An attribute of God. Acts 1.8. New Testament reference. Acts 1.8 we read, this is uh, Jesus' final words before His ascension up into glory, Acts 1.8, Jesus is speaking here. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit would come upon them at Pentecost, of course, and remain on them all, even as they disseminated to the ends of the earth. It wasn't that he could only go with Thomas over here and only go with, you know, Bartholomew over here and only go with Matthew over here. The Holy Spirit was going with all of them simultaneously because he's omnipresent. He's the Holy Spirit. He's not bound by a body like we are. And then, by way of conclusion, we looked at the worship of Jesus Christ. Unless you see the the doxology of baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28, 19, there really isn't reference to worship explicitly given to the Holy Spirit. And there's some people who will say that perhaps Philippians 3... Maybe as a reference, they'll translate Philippians 3, verse 3, something like this. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. I'm reading from the ESV which says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Almost all English translations render it something close to that. Why is this? Why is the Holy Spirit not explicitly worshipped? Well, part of that is because of the role that the Holy Spirit was sent to play in the the economic trinity, the outworking of salvation. John 15.26 that we read earlier tells us that the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father to bear witness about the Son. The Holy Spirit was sent to bear witness of the Son. He will bear witness about me, Jesus says. And in John 16, 14, that the Holy Spirit's work was to glorify the Son. So the Holy Spirit's goal, His motive, is the same as the Father's. They seek the exaltation of the Son, which the Son is the preeminent figure in scripture of course that doesn't mean he's more important than the father and the spirit doesn't mean the father and the spirit lack something that the son has or anything like that no we wouldn't have it that way but that the holy spirit does not seek his glory he seeks to bring honor and glory to the son he seeks the worship of jesus christ the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Son and the Father seeks with the Father the glorification and worship of the Son. And yet what's ironic is that we couldn't even worship God without God the Holy Spirit, which is what Philippians 3.3 3 teaches. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. That's what it's teaching. If the Holy Spirit is, in, is God, yes. We should worship Him. How? by thanking Him for the work of regeneration that He's done in us. When was the last time in your prayers you thanked God for saving you? We should thank the Holy Spirit for what He has done and for the work of sanctification that He continues to do by His indwelling presence, illuminating Scripture for us. We can thank the Holy Spirit for the very ability and desire to pray. Even when we don't know what to pray or or how to pray, the Holy Spirit is said to intercede for us in prayer with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8.26 Ultimately, we worship the Holy Spirit by honoring His work, by believing the Son whom the Holy Spirit was sent to testify of and has done so in this Word of God this, the Word of God. Whoever believes in Jesus will have a fountain of living water flowing from his heart, Jesus says in John 7.37. And in the next verse says, this water is the Holy Spirit who initiates and cultivates love for Jesus in us. And so let us love the Holy Spirit by thanking Him for His place in the Trinitarian redemption and honor His work. Worship and love and serve and praise and declare the glory of the Son in the context of the Trinity. Without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we would never know anything of the Trinitarian love of God for us. So, let's pray. Father, our God, our Son, your Son, Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit, three in one, we thank you and we praise you for what you have done for us in sending your Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son. We're thankful for that gift. We are thankful for your work, O Spirit, in our lives for granting to us this eternal life, for giving to us second birth from on high. We are grateful for illuminating our minds to understand the gospel and for giving to us faith to believe it. So we pray, O Spirit, that You would stir our hearts to love Jesus Christ more and more and that You would work in us to conform us to His image and that You would regenerate those who are lost, that You would draw them into the love of God. We thank You and we praise You, O God, for Your planning love, for Your demonstrating love for the atonement that was made and for the Spirit's application of that atonement, that redemption to us. Father, we will never, um, never be grateful enough through all eternity for what You've done for us. But we are grateful tonight as we consider the deity of Your Holy Spirit. Help us not to slight Him, not to spurn Him, to grieve Him, to quench Him, but to be sensitive to Your illumination of the Spirit as You bring to mind Your Word that You've written as we meditate upon it. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all for His sake. Amen.